I'm with Naomi, who's my wife. Um, Hi, Naomi. Hi, Naomi. It's all good. Um, for about a year you and... Said, see, I love it. See, it sounds like you just said that's all good. <laughs> and and whenever, whenever people say that's awkward, I hear them saying that's awkward. And uh, when you watch people say that's awkward all the time, no, no, don't worry about it, that's awkward. Uh, I just think that's fantastic. So I liked hearing it the other way around. Uh, just then you saying, oh, no, that's all good. It both work, really. Uh, don't worry about me. We'll what get was to the a, question? We'll get to a sermon <laughs> at some point. You've been coming for a while. Yeah, a year and four months now. Excellent. Or actually, I was, might be wrong. It might be a year and three because we came in February. doesn't matter. But close to a year, somewhere between a year and three and four months. Fantastic. Mate, um, you're now part of our staff team. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so you liked it so much you thought you joined the staff team. That's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, we can't do that for all of you, but we're thankful that you're here. Um, Tim, tell us, uh, what are you doing as part of uh, our staff here at New Life? So I'm on as a student minister, uh, and part of that involves sort of partnering with uh, the place that I do my training and my studying, which is more college in the city, and they, they train and they teach us how to read the Bible and how to, how to teach it to others, uh, and that involves a student ministry position at a church, and we, we loved it here, so we thought we would offer it to you, and yeah, so now I'm here. I come here on the Sundays at, in the morning and the night to sort of meet you guys, to help out where I can, uh, and I'm with Michael on Friday nights as well, just helping him out as much as I can with that. That's great. And that's something you've got some background into, Tim? Yeah, so I spent eight years over in Camden at a place called St John's, which most of you will know, um, uh, working there as full-time as the youth minister. For, that was for eight years, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. And, mate, you're just back from mm-hmm. uh, how long on mission? Huh? Well, we were on mission for 10 days, so Sunday to Sunday-ish, but then we really we got the Saturday driving and Monday driving, so it was 10 days. Uh, we went to a place called Camden Haven, which is like Camden but with a beach. So it's kind of nice. Camden has a beach. It's next to the bridge. And uh, <laughs> um, Tim, we'd love to hear about that, but we're not going to have time now. Mm. Please come and talk to Tim over um, supper mm-hmm. and um, find out what's happened on, uh, on mission. Mate, we're really thankful that you're part of the staff team mm-hmm. and we're looking forward to what you've got to say on uh, the Word of God. And um, it appears that we're, we're passing, you're learning things from yeah. the senior minister. So that's, <laughs> that's great, mate. I'm going to sit down and let you handle the Word of God. Thanks so much. Thank you. Uh, it'd be great if you could keep your Bibles open to Luke chapter 9, as we'll be referring to that throughout. Uh, but let me continue in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who is always with us. We thank you that you are a God who teaches and guides us and shows us what we need to know. We just pray as we look at your word now that you will open our hearts and our minds to understand clearly uh, your will, your wants, uh, and how we can stand closer to you in a relationship. Uh, we pray that you'll guide what is spoken, that it is said uh, in your name and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, about seven or eight years ago, Naomi uh, and I had the opportunity to move into my parents' old house. Uh, they were heading up north uh, to Brisbane, uh, warmer pastures, and they offered us their house at a, at a you know, slightly cheaper rent than what was average for Camden at the time. Uh, and so we took the opportunity to move in, and it was the house that I grew up in. Uh, and one of the things that had bugged me about that house since growing up was that the bathroom tap was always cold. The hot water didn't work. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever, you know, gotten out, gone to the bathroom, and it's minus two degrees as it gets in Camden in the winter, and you go to wash your hands, and the water is like ice, and sometimes you have to wonder whether it's even worth washing your hands for hygiene's sake. Uh, so what I thought I would do, I thought as we moved in, uh, not long after moving in, I'm like, well, all right, we're going to fix this, we're going to replace this tap, we're going to get a new tap. 
I thought, you know what, I'm going to do my own plumbing. Don't do your own plumbing, <laughs> unless you're really good at it. No, it was not the best of endeavors. We, we, we started off pretty well. We looked under the sink. We figured out what all the connections were that we needed, what kind of tap we needed to buy. We went to Bunnings. We got the tap that we liked. It was the right tap. We came back, started setting it all up, uh, and realized that I had to take off the old tap. Uh, and the old tap was glued in with this glue from the 80s that was just really well-made glue because I could not get it off. So I had to use a hammer, so I kind of was hitting it, hitting the tap. It's in this porcelain sink. It's just, anyway, uh, hitting the tap, trying to break it off. At one point, I was prying it off with the hammer, and I'm sort of leaning and supporting myself off the cabinet while the glass shower door is behind me. It was a lot of fun. I was having a great time. Uh, but then things got worse. I finally got it all out, put the new tap in. I went to connect the copper pipe and it snapped. Now, I didn't know anything about plumbing, so I thought, what if I tried duct tape? So I tried duct tape. Doesn't work. I tried super glue. That didn't work either. I tried all sorts of random things. I tried to just see if I could jam it in there and hope it all works, and nothing worked. I was very wet, and by the end of it, I was pretty miserable. Uh, in the end, we had to go and stay at my parents' house uh, because we didn't have hot water. We didn't have any water. Uh, and it was a little, I, there was a little sad bit that I didn't share this morning. Naomi at the time was trying to make lasagna, and so she had this one little precious bit of water that she could use to try and wet the lasagna sheets as she did it. And we, it, was a, it was an awful experience. But it, it actually really undermined my confidence in ever doing my own plumbing again. Uh, later on, I got the opportunity uh, to install another sink in our house, and I really didn't want to do it. I had lost my eagerness, my confidence, and my, what I thought was my ability to go and do this ever again. And I'm sharing this with you because I think it's, it's a great microcosm for, for living the new life for Jesus. We, we go out there and we're excited and we're energized and we want to tell people and we want to live it, and then we'll hit some sort of barrier. We'll be attacked by someone. We'll be ridiculed. We'll lose our passion and our enthusiasm. We'll, we'll suddenly no longer have that same desire. And it can become really hard to want to go out and do that. Uh, and my encouragement for you tonight is that what we see in our reading is that Jesus has the power to help us live the new life for him. We're going to look at three key things that we see in this passage. First of all, we're going to see that Jesus, the authority that Jesus has and gives. We're going to see the danger that that authority brings and we're going to look at the power that we have to overcome that danger in Jesus. So let's start off straight away with authority. If you look with me at verse uh, 1 from chapter 9, it says this. It says, When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, Take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Uh, when I've read this passage in the past, I've kind of seen this as a little bit of a, you know, helpful bit of information, but I really want to get to the cool stuff like the parables and the healing that we see in the Bible uh, and the miracles, but this is actually a really powerful and important thing for us to acknowledge and read as we try to live a new life for God. What we see here really is the very first sending out of the 12, 
and the setup for what will become the book of Acts, uh, the sequel, if that's the appropriate term to use, to the book of Luke. We're seeing the very first opportunity the disciples have to go and serve Jesus. And they're told to do three very specific things. They're told, one, to drive out demons, cure disease, proclaim the kingdom, and heal the sick. They're to take nothing with them, no bag, no cloak, no extra shirt. And they're told to dust, take the dust of their feet when they leave a town that rejects them. Three very specific instructions and three things that I think have a lot of meaning as we look into them. The first one here, the the healing of the sick, the curing of diseases, the proclaiming the good news. When I looked into that, it kind of helped me see this idea of words and actions as we live the new life. They're told to drive out demons, to cure diseases, to do these wondrous things and proclaim the good news. And I want us to acknowledge here that, that they are told and they do perform wondrous miracles. I'm a bit of a skeptic when it comes to miracles. Um, I don't, not, not so much biblical. I look at the Bible and I go, yep, I believe that those happened. But when I turn on a TV at 5 a.m. in the morning and I see one man smacking another guy in the head and suddenly he's cured, I am skeptical of the power being used there and whether it's real. Yet what we see here is that there is a definite confirmation that the proclamation of God is accompanied by wondrous things, powerful things. And it's important as we look at this to not consider it too skeptical that wondrous things still can't happen as we work this new life. I was trying to think about what this sort of means and and what I realized is, is that it's really about the fact that when we live for God, it's a combination of words and actions. Uh, We've got here giving and living. Uh, They're separated because of graphical reasons and, and, you know, having a nice format in the church, but they go together. They're not these this two separate semicircles. They're one circle that tells us that the, the sharing, the giving of the Word of God is accompanied always by the living of the Word of God. Uh, anyone here, this might not go down as well as it did in the morning, anyone here any, buy any CDs in the 90s? For those of you who didn't, you know, streaming, that's great, Spotify, uh, you buy a CD and there would be a little booklet in it with all the song lyrics that you want to listen to. I mean, unless you were buying like classical jazz and it's just all drumming. Um, There'd be song lyrics in there and there'd always be a note at the end of like a message from the band and thank yous. And almost every band in the 90s started with God. Thank you, God. And I've got to be honest, when I'm opening the booklet of my Blink-182 CD and it says, thank you, God, I don't think they're necessarily living what they're saying they believe. And I think sometimes for us, that's what faith can turn into. That's what, what living this life can turn into. It's, it's all about verbal communication, not about physical, not about living a life that brings love to others, that shows love to others, that meets people where their need is. Secondly, we've got trust in action. Uh, the disciples are told to go out and not take anything with them. No extra shirt, no bag, no food, no money. Just, just go. Uh, it's a pretty confronting and scary kind of proposition. Go and do this and you're not allowed to take anything with you. Uh, I was on mission uh, last week 
a week before. Uh, and on the second day of mission, I dropped my phone and it shattered and was no longer usable. And I felt lost. I felt alone. I'd lost my ability to communicate with the outside world. Uh, not only that, but my team was using WhatsApp, which only works on phones, doesn't work on tablets and other things. So I couldn't communicate with my team to figure out where I was meant to be. I had to follow this friend of mine around the whole week and ask him, what are we doing? Where are we going? What's happening? He was the person I had to rely on. And I'm glad that happened because it's a perfect metaphor for what we're talking about here. This description to the disciples to give up and not take things with them, it's not about, I want you to go live a really hard life because I just want to watch you suffer while you do my work. It's about, I want you to go out and trust that I will give you what you need. Because they are told that they will be welcomed. They will be invited into homes. They will be given the food that is needed for them. I needed my friend to tell me what to, what to do and where to be. And we need Jesus to give us what we need. So it's not about living a life of masochism where we hurt ourselves and make ourselves suffer. It's about living a life of reliance on God's providence as we go and work for him. Thirdly, we see judgment from action. They're told to dust, wipe the dust off their feet. Uh, this, is, this would have been really controversial. If you were an uh, earliest century Jew, this would have been a really controversial statement to read because it was the practice of Jews when they walked through a Gentile town to wipe the dust off their feet. It was considered a form of cleansing, of making themselves holy because they've been in the unimpure lands of the Gentiles. And so as they leave, they would dust off their feet and be clean again. And yet Jesus says, now when you leave a town, if they reject you, you dust off your feet as a sign of judgment. He takes this, this isolating practice that made, made one group stand out and instead applies it to all of the world. Because he doesn't say, if the Gentiles reject you, it's just if that town. Which means that this judgment goes beyond one group to everyone. He's flipped this practice and it's this great moment because what it actually means is that if that judgment now applies for everyone, that means that that salvation that is coming will apply for everyone. But it's a real warning for us about what rejecting Jesus ultimately means. It's this symbolism of you are dust to be brushed off feet. It's pretty full on. They've got a big challenge, a big task ahead of them. They're instructed to go and do this. Uh, but they're given one extra thing as they do this, and it's in the very first verse, if you look with me. It says, He gave them power and authority to drive out demons and to cure diseases. He gave them power and authority. The disciples are not going out empty-handed like the passage seems to imply. They're going out with the power and authority of Jesus at their disposal. A good way to think of this is imagine... The first time your parents, some of you may not have had this happen yet, but imagine the first time your parents left you at home alone in charge of the house. It was exciting. It was a moment of trust. It was a moment of expectation. You are in charge. You get to do what you want in that house. Jesus is preparing his disciples. He is getting them ready for the work that is to come. And he's giving them the power and authority that they need to fulfill it. 
Now, I'm using the house thing as a metaphor. It's not 100% correct. One, because Jesus doesn't just abandon, not that your parents ever abandoned you, but Jesus doesn't just leave and isn't there anymore. He's with us. But think about it when you looked after the house, or maybe with your younger, when you get the opportunity to look after your house. Do you think your parents are going to be happy if they come home and discover that the house is completely trashed? One time I, I put a hole in the wall when they were out, uh, and I thought I could move some furniture to block it. It didn't occur to me that my parents knew where all the furniture originally sits, so they were able to tell pretty quickly what I'd done, and they were very unhappy with me. God is leaving his disciples, and ultimately what we see is that God is leaving us, his people, with the power and authority to do his work. And that should really encourage you. If you believe and follow Jesus, you have his power and authority. Just think about that. You have his power and authority. That should fill us with confidence. That should fill us with strength to know that we have his authority to live the life that he wants. But it should also fill us with a little bit of, you know, trepidation. We know that he's coming back and we know he's going to look at the house and he's going to want to know what kind of state we left that house in. And it's really important that we, we realize with this authority, to quote Spider-Man, comes great responsibility. I'm sure it's in other things too. Later on, as we read the verse, we're told that the disciples do a good job, that they go and they heal and they proclaim. And it draws attention, which leads us from authority into danger. If you look with me at ver- from verse 7, he says, Now Herod, and the tetri- Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is it that I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. This is a really unusual scene. You've got this moment of Jesus sending out the disciples and you would expect some sort of great recount of the work that they do and the encouragement that comes. Uh, But instead we flash to Herod uh, and we're sitting in his chamber hearing him talk and him think. And then we hear about John the Baptist being dead in three words. Uh, Luke has spent several chapters in the early part of his book building up who John the Baptist was. We hear the story of how his parents couldn't conceive and how they, through the miracle of God they were able to and then how his husband, his father was muted. We hear all this background story. We build up this character and then in three, set, three words, I beheaded John, we find out that he's died. It's a bit of a jarring moment for us. It'd be like if you were reading Harry Potter and then Ron Weasley just slips in a sentence, oh, by the way, Hagrid died, let's move on. Hagrid doesn't die, I haven't ruined the book, but imagine if that kind of thing happened. You would be, what? Can we go back and talk about this a bit more? And as I was considering what this scene is like, we need to consider this moment in this book. It's the flash to the enemy, it's the flash to the villain's lair. Again, to quote the 90s cartoons, I'm getting older, I'm quoting the 90s. Anyway, to quote the 90s, it's that meanwhile back at the enemy base moment. It's this flash to the evil villain 
getting ready to planning, to thinking, to responding to what's going on about around them. And what we actually see in this passage is that the work of the Lord draws the attention of hostile people. The disciples go, they preach, they heal, they proclaim. And then suddenly Herod starts hearing about the work of Jesus. There's three things that you can never talk about at a dinner party. Money, politics, and religion. Uh, I kind of get why you can't talk about money. Money can be a very demeaning or, or elitist kind of thing. You know, if you talk about how much money you earn, it can make others feel let down. Or you could be perceived as being way too wealthy for what you do or whatever. And so there's, there's a bit of an etiquette to why you shouldn't talk about money. Uh, politics is an easy one why you shouldn't talk about politics at dinner because you just have to watch any political conversation on TV to know that it never ends very well. You have to be very mature, articulate, and loving people to have a political conversation that doesn't end in a shouting match. But then you get to religion. Why is religion so offensive? Why is saying to someone, Jesus died for your sins, such an awful thing to say? To many people in this world, the message of Christ is dangerous and offensive. Uh, and to our brothers and sisters who live in, in other parts of the world, they know this far better than we do, uh, in parts of China and Africa and places where they face real-life danger, telling people about Christ. People are offended by what should be a great and powerful message. To Herod, it was dangerous because it flipped the whole social dynamic of the world that they lived in. There's no longer slave, Jew, Gentile, Roman. It's everyone is free under Christ. There is a new king, a new throne. To people today, it might just be the threat of giving up the sort of individualistic, pleasure-seeking lifestyle that we've come to love. And that could be offensive, being told that I shouldn't live that way. It's, you know, when you hang out with your friends and you're going out and they want to do something that you know that God doesn't want you to. And so you say to them, I'm not comfortable doing this because I know that my Lord doesn't want me to. In a perfect world, they would go, great, we respect that. But what normally happens is they go, why are you so lame? Why are you being a loser? Why aren't you participating? Surely God doesn't care what you do. But as much as that is, is discouraging to think about, I actually want to say to you guys that this is a good thing. Herod, we don't jump to Herod because things are going horrible. We jump to Herod because the disciples are working. Uh, there's this old saying when it comes to video games, I love video games. And the way it works is that if there's nothing to shoot, you're going in the wrong direction. You've always get me. That's all right. Anyway, the point is, is that if, there's, if we're living our life for God and we're not necessarily facing any sort of conflict or trouble because of that faith, we have to ask ourselves, are we heading in the right direction? Because with the success in our new life comes the attention of those that are hostile. Right, Christ-centered living draws the attention of those who wish to see God's kingdom fall. Now, this might be a little scary and intimidating, but I think Luke has deliberately slipped this little story, this little section, right here because of what comes next, which leads us to our third idea of power. 
we've got this story of the feeding of the 5,000. It's probably a story that many of us are familiar with. 5,000 people gather together. They need food. Jesus gives them food. And there's three big things that I want to draw from this as we look at it. The first thing is that, as we see in this passage, Jesus doesn't use his schedule as an excuse to abandon people. If you look at me from verse 10, we read, When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethesda. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Jesus and his disciples withdrew. This is another one of those moments uh, that Stuart's been pointing out to us, those moments where Jesus knows it's appropriate to rest. And so they withdraw. Yet the crowds pursue. Jesus doesn't look at them, and he, he, when they come to him, he doesn't look at them and go, sorry guys, it's my rostered day off. Can you come back tomorrow and we'll get, get down to the healing and the preaching and the teaching? It'll be great. He looks at them and we're told that he loves them. And if you look in other parts of the Bible, he says he looks at them with compassion because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And what I learned from this is that sometimes we need to put aside our plans to help and care for others. Sometimes we need to be willing to sacrifice time to show love. But I also want to encourage you, uh, as you look to your staff, as you look to Stuart and the rest of the team, that they are people that do this regularly. And so for you guys, I'd encourage you to have compassion and love for them, knowing that they do this a lot. And it means that they sacrifice the moments that they get to rest regularly. Uh, So maybe be a little bit more patient with them and loving as you work with them. But know that they love you and that they do sacrifice for you. Secondly, I want to just, again, look at this actual miracle in a bit more detail. Uh, we're told here that there are 5,000 men. And the word here in Greek, sorry to put on my, my glasses, uh, the word here in Greek is literally the word for man, as in masculine male. It's not the generic word for people, it's the word that means a male. Which means that there are probably with these pe- men, women and children. So while we say 5,000, we're probably looking at something closer to 10,000 or more. That's about five carols in the parks worth of people, or I think like 200 or something of this building filled with people. That is a huge crowd. I mean, I get uncomfortable when there's like four people in my cafe. That's just me. These people come and they need to be fed. So Jesus, what does he do? He, He looks to heaven and he takes the bread that he has and he breaks it. And then they split these 5,000 to 10,000 people into groups of 50. Just think about the logistics of doing that. There are people who are are paid a weekly wage to organize events that only have 1,000 people attending, and yet we have 10,000 people being organized. It's this amazing marvel of people being fed. Just imagine that scene. Imagine walking by and seeing that happen. The only real big description, though, that we get of the miracle is of Jesus looking to heaven and breaking bread. And that's a really important thing to note. When Jesus performs other miracles, we get this huge amount of detail. When he, when he heals the blind man, we're told that he spits in the mud, he rubs the mud together, and he rubs it on his eyes. At other moments, he talks. He says, get up and walk, and it happens. 
And yet here we're just kind of told that he looks to heaven, he breaks the bread, and everyone is fed. It's important that we acknowledge first that he looks to heaven and breaks the bread. I think that's the key thing here in what Jesus does, is he looks to the Lord, and the Lord provides what is happening. Now, I don't know how the miracle would have worked. It could have worked like, he, you know, like a never-ending packet of Tim Tams where he breaks off the bread, puts it in a basket, it grows back, he keeps doing that over and over again. But what we do know is that he is, everyone is well-fed. And when I consider the vagueness of this miracle, I consider who is this miracle actually for? And I do think it's for the people to be fed, but I think this miracle is more for the disciples to understand the question of who Jesus is. They still don't really get it. They have seen him heal the sick. They have seen him help the blind see. They have seen him cast out demons that no one dare go near. They have seen him help paraplegic people walk. They have seen him heal children living two towns away. They themselves have been given that same ability and gone and done it. And yet when it comes to feeding the 5,000 people, they look at Jesus and go, can you send them away so they can be fed? When Jesus looks at them and he tells them, you feed them, he's encouraging them to consider what they have already done and to use the power and authority they have been given. And yet the disciples still don't get it. They go, well, all right, we can pay for it. It's going to use all our money, uh, but we can do it. This miracle is for them. And it's, it's the big question that a lot of the Gospels that Mark and Luke ask, who is Jesus? Uh, and next week, we're going to get that moment where the disciples kind of get it. The disciples kind of understand it a bit more. But it's a great question, I think, to finish on as we look at the power, authority, danger, and power that Christ brings. The question of who is Jesus to you? The disciples don't really get it until the book of Acts. They don't get it until Jesus goes on that cross, suffers for our sins, is buried and rises from the grave. And in that moment, they finally understand that he is the Son of God sent to save the world. But for you right now, I want to ask the question, who is Jesus to you? Do you think he is someone that can give you authority? Is, is he a mate? Is he a buddy? Is he just a really nice guy? Is he your Lord, your master, your savior? Is he someone who can give you authority? Is he someone who's worth facing the danger for that comes with that authority? And is he someone that you believe has the power to overcome that danger? I mentioned that I had the opportunity to do some more plumbing, and I did. Uh, but this time, I went into it a little bit differently. The first thing I did was I called my brother, who's done a lot of renos and stuff like that, so I asked him for advice on what to do. I Googled. I looked on YouTube. There's so many things on how to fix things on YouTube. It's great. Uh, I did my research. I looked around, and I, I got help. And as I, leave with you, as I leave you here tonight, I want you to consider that you are not alone with this power, danger, and authority. You are not by yourself. I asked my brother for help, and you have God's family here for your help. You have Christ here with you to help you.
I looked up and I researched and I, I, I discovered what I had to do. And in the same way, guys, we have the Word of God, this amazing gift in front of us to know what God wants us to do, to know that God has given us that authority and to know how to use it. And it's all in there. I think what I want you to consider as you, as you leave here tonight, as we consider what it means to live a new life, one, whether it's worth it, which I think it is, but two, do you think Jesus has the power to get you through it? Because I think he does. And I think he's proved it already to us at the cross. Let me finish in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who has loved us, that has died for us, that you have taken away our sins and that we stand forgiven now as your people. We pray that you will use us to build and grow and spread the message of new life to Oran Park and the greater world. We pray that you help us to live that new life in, our, in ourselves and be confident in the power and authority that you have given us to trust on you in those moments of danger and to stay with you until the day that you return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh, it's just question time. Any questions? <laughs> okay. Hey, Tim. Hey. Really enjoyed your talk. Um, can, you, uh, can you join our first reading to our second reading for us at all? Is there any connection from... Um, Exodus uh, to Luke? Uh, yes and no, I think. I would like, when I looked into a lot, a lot of... Because uh, I wasn't sure, because if I was to make the, the quickest answer, it would be that while God gave the, the Israelites what they needed, Jesus filled their people till they were, had no more and then still had food left over. So this kind of abundance of Christ's grace that just overflows uh, compared to it. Um, that's my first thought, was my first thought when I read it. Um, I didn't mention it because a lot of commentaries seem to say, oh, no, it's got nothing to do with that. So I was, I was hesitant to, but that, that would be my, my big connection. I think the, the idea of God providing just what they need compared to Christ giving us so much more is a big thing there, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I'm done. Thanks, guys. <laughs>